Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My interview today is with Karen Valley. She is the director of the National Amputee Center at War Amps here in Canada. And they've been around for a long time, uh, after World War II. 1946, they started, I believe, what they call the Key Tag Service, about 70 years. Uh, their funding, if not all of their funding, most of their funding comes from these little key tags that I remember my dad had many, many years ago as a kid. Uh, that if you know you lose your keys, you drop them into the mailbox, boom, they make it uh, their, their their way back to you. One and a half million people have benefited from the system, and that's how War Amps raises their funds. Karen's wonderful to chat with. She talks she talks a lot about uh, the, the whole notion of, of of pushing boundaries, and she talks about her own personal um, um, experience with pushing boundaries in the community that she grew up in, and she talks about the notion of uh, being disabled and about pioneering her own way and, and, and a new vocabulary and how it's always changing and why, you know, uh, we do need to have a care and a concern for the other and, and why there's uh, always uh, somebody worse off than, than, than we are personally. As my dad used to say, some, the, something, uh, um, uh, something always worse happens at sea or something along those lines, one of those crazy cliches. Anyway, you're going to enjoy this interview. Uh, waramps.ca, check them out. Uh, don't forget davidpecklive.com, rabble.ca for more interviews coming soon to a theater near you. Well, welcome to Face to Face, and we are joined by a, a special guest today, uh, the director of Nas the National Amputee Center at, at War Amps, Karen Valley, is here with us today. Karen, thank you for joining us. Great. Thank you very much, David. So we've got lots to talk about, as usual, I think, on Face to Face, and I know that we're going to probably end up in some places that you and I don't even know about yet, which I think is always exciting, a uh, little frightening, and, and always wonderful, Karen. So um, thanks for taking that risk with me. So the War Amps is committed to improving the quality of life for Canadian amputees. That's, that is kind of one of your taglines, and I know that this year is 70 years of what you call your key tag service. I have a memory about that that I want to share with you in a second, but 
tell me and our listeners what exactly key tags at WarAmps are all about. Absolutely. So the key tag service service started in 1946 after World War II, and it was an opportunity for those who couldn't return to their previous employment to work in an environment that um, understood their their physical challenges, being an amputee as a result of World War II, um, and in a supportive environment with their peer group to provide uh, meaningful employment and a service to Canadians. And if some of the, the listeners might recall, the uh, earlier key tags were like mini license plates, and they actually had your license plate number on the tag. And um, when you lost your keys, it, someone put them in the mailbox, Canada Post sent them to us, and then we would be able to look up the record and return the keys to the owner. Um, things have evolved over time. We now have a confidentially coded number on the key tag. Um, you can put them in the mailbox or call the 1-800 number on the back, and we'll return them by bonded courier. So they, they no longer need to come physically back to us. We're able to do a, 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 a safe private service where the, the finder turns them over to the courier system, and the courier system delivers them to the owner. And so it's really helped a lot of people get their keys back a lot sooner, and we've returned more than a million and a half sets of keys. Okay, so, so Karen... A mil- okay, so I read that on the press release. A million and a half sets of lost keys since 1946. That's an awful lot of absent-minded Canadians. Well, you know, keys get lost in a variety of ways. Um, you're not always simply forgetting where you put them. Um, we've had, uh, I remember a story a number of years ago where an individual was out shoveling snow and, and had their keys in their jacket pocket and ran inside to use the washroom mm. and the keys fell out and they turned up in a sanitation system, um, you <laughs> wow. know, in, in the screen several years, you know, several months later, right. and they were able to be reunited with their owners. Um, you know, sometimes they fall out when you're tobogganing um, and uh, they don't turn up to spring when the snow melts. Uh, so, you know, it, it's often a variety of ways. People um, might put them in their, their luggage or their, uh, you know, their backpacks or their purses. And if those, um, maybe get lifted or something, then uh, they might get returned um, because, uh, you know, someone found them, a good Samaritan finds them and drops them in the mailbox or calls their 1-800 number. So there are many ways that they might they might go astray, um, as well as those that are absent-minded, I suppose. <laughs> but, uh, you're, trying, so you're trying to be nice now, Carol. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, but it does happen, uh, yes. you know, in some creative ways as well. And so... Yeah. Uh, but it is it is a large amount of keys over the you know the length of, you know, over it's the wild. seventy years. That's a I, long time. My dad, you know, I my dad was was one of the most uh, generous people that I know. I, I have these memories of, you know, the cancer society and different foundations and so on of envelopes sitting beside him that he would write checks to back in those days. And I'm old enough to remember when the key tags were actually aluminum, and they yeah. would kind of bend in a fun way and 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 kind of kink in a fun way on the on the keychain. And I remember them being stuck to, I mean, opening the envelopes, I can see them. A real, a real visceral experience for me as a kid, which I think speaks volumes to, you know, to the direct mail-like nature of your fundraising. And I find it fascinating that I think you said earlier offline that most of your fundraising is in fact connected to this program or this service. Definitely. What, what's really, I think, interesting about who we are and what we do is that we don't receive any government grants or government funds. And so um, our, our prime source of, uh, of operating funds are through the key tag uh, service. And so we don't, we don't sell our tags. We send them out as a service to Canadians, as a, you know, a, a return key service. Um, and for those Canadians that find it to be a, a valuable or a useful service, they donate to us. 
And those are the funds that we use to operate all of our programs for all of our amputees. And um, we're very efficient with our the funds that we raise. Um, we're, we're really good about using 90% of the dollar um, for the programs that we do and, and not in administrative funds. And um, we really we really protect our, our donors' privacy as well. We don't sell or trade our mailing list. Um, and uh, we really value that relationship and the support that the Canadian public has has given us. We've been around since 1918, so yeah, it's really a long-standing relationship and a, and a trust that we've built up with Canadians. Well, and I think it's amazing that you you don't, you don't use professional fundraisers, you don't use government grants, you don't solicit by phone or door to door, or a variety of other things. It's really quite interesting how you have created this return, you know, this fee for service, and and have built your programs on that. I think maybe in in some ways you guys were way ahead of your time. You know, because I th- I think you know from my experience with the nonprofit sector and what's going on now, people are struggling to raise funds and having a tough time because you know where's the value, right? What's in it for me, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. It's got to be got to be a little more than just a tax deductible receipt. It seems to me. Well, and, and I think Canadians can really understand the work that we do when they realize how much of their donation goes directly to the programs. And and when I say programs, I mean providing funding for artificial limbs for Canadians. Um, to ensure that they can uh, still participate fully in life, that they can be active, um, that they that children especially can grow up with their peers and not be held back on the mm. sidelines, mm. that they're able to try different activities to find out what what is their niche, what is their passion in life, um, and uh, and it helps Canadians uh, stay in the workforce. It helps them to be socially engaged. Um, we also have many supports and services, you know, in addition to our our tangible funding for artificial limbs. It's information and resources and that experience of amputees, helping amputees, we've lived it. Um, We're able to speak about our experience with that and to connect amputees with other amputees in similar situations. It's a very small percent of the the population that experiences amputation at various stages of life. And so to be able to talk to someone who has lived there, who has been there, um, is very valuable to, to our new amputees coming into the program. I guess I guess there's not a lot of really, uh, interestingly enough, not a lot of war amputees anymore. Is that true, or like a, would would most of your uh, the people that you're working with would they have been born without limbs, or would these be accident victims? I mean, I mean, I'd like to think there's not as many war amputees. I guess there are still um, soldiers coming back home from Afghanistan and other places around the world without limbs, but. Uh, Numbers have changed. Uh, we certainly had a large influx after World War II and a smaller one after Korea. Uh, and then we went many years without a global conflict. And, uh, and so Canada really didn't see an influx of, of new um, amputee soldiers. And uh, then Afghanistan came around. And it is a, it, it, there was an influx. It, it was a, it's a small influx in comparison. Um, but their needs, while in some ways are incredibly similar to those from World War II, Hmm. Um, they are also incredibly different, uh, and so it, it, it's it's a different opportunity for us to work with that population, um, to take all the lessons that we've learned over these years and apply that to this new population. We've you know we, we pretty much wrote the book on veterans pension hmm. uh, benefits and and how to navigate them, and so we're able to use that expertise now. We we were involved in in trying to get the new veterans charter um, where it needed to be. We we continue to work on that. So we're able to help them navigate as uh, as an individual with with amputation. Their needs are are much different than than those that don't have a physical um, disability as a result of the war. Um, and so we have that amputation experience as well that can help them navigate that. 
what what's really different um, is World War II, II. The experience of the amputee veteran was um, they had other occupations before the war. They mm, signed up for right. the war. They went overseas to the war. These are career soldiers that went to Afghanistan, and they they really expected that their life would always be in the military until retirement um, and natural retirement. And um, so to suffer an amputation, and especially in, in combat, um, the trauma that that does to the whole body, and not just physical, um, but, but mental and emotional as well, um, is, is incredible. And so for many of them, it means an end to their military career. And so it's, it's changing what they come back to. And, that, and that's a different um, reestablishment process or reintegration process than it would have been after World War II. So we've, we've learned a lot since then. We've experienced a lot in working with other amputee populations in Canada that were not military. Um, to be able to work with that new population of veterans to help them reintegrate into society from the, the uh, amputation side of things, the social side of things. Um, and, and we work with Veterans Affairs and National Defense. We have agreements with both of them too, to look after that population, to help them reintegrate into society, um, having left military service. So it, it, it takes uh, it takes all of us partners working together to provide that assistance. Yeah, well, and then Karen, I guess, you know, you say it just raises a question or two for me when you say amputation into the social side of things, you know, the reintegration from amputation into the social side. And I wonder, I've got a lot of questions around that, I think, but I wonder to what degree things were different after World War II and they are today. I mean, was there a stigma? I do a lot of work in Southeast Asia, and I know that, and you and I have chatted about this before, but you know, amputees in other countries around the world are certainly looked down upon in a way that I don't think they are here. And yet, I do wonder um, uh, to what degree some of those those um, biases still play 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 a, a part in our culture as well. We're definitely in a different situation in Canada than many of the third world countries that you and I spoke about before. Um, we've come leaps and bounds over where we were in after World War II. I remember one of our World War II veterans talking to me about when he came back to Ottawa as an amputee and um, in, in the 1940s and the, the place where he would go to get his artificial limb made was on the second floor of a building downtown Ottawa and um, it was the, the Department of Veterans Affairs limb fitters uh, place and it was up a flight of stairs. Oh, um, it's not it even in, funny but it's kind of I'm, I'm tragically was, funny. It, you know, we laugh about it together now, um, and it was a narrow staircase, and he would talk about the, the challenges of navigating that staircase on crutches. Um, it wasn't even wide enough to really um, effectively use this crutches. And this was, and, Karen, this was Veterans Affairs. This was Veterans Affairs. Oh, and this, You know, and, and the, you know, he, his, his comments now are, well, you know, I was better off than, than an individual with no legs that was in a wheelchair. Um, right. And... And and that is it's interesting when you when you talk to most of the entities that we work with, um, myself included, that you know there, there's always someone worse off than mm, I am, mm. um, and so it's a it's a way that we check ourselves and and look, see what we're really able to do, what we're really capable of, of achieving. But uh, you know, we when we look back on that time and the supports and services available, um, even even the technology that was available, even the wheelchairs that were available, the the accessibility. Um, of, of general society uh, was not anywhere close to what it is today. Um, and I would say we, you know, as a society, we've, we've done very well to get where we're at. However, it's still not where it could be. And, uh, and, and we're met with those uh, examples.
people's every day in what we do. And so there's definitely work to do to continue to improve accessibility. Um, and it's not just for amputees, it's, it's for everyone. And, uh, and so anything that we can do to add to that effort um, we're always happy to share that, there, that information and knowledge. There must be a sense, you know, when, uh, you know, I, I recently had shoulder surgery, so my arm was in a sling for six weeks, and I felt subconscious about my arm being in a sling. I would go out, and it was sort of, you know, I'd have the coat sort of around me looking like kind of an overcoat, kind of looking like the aristocracy, you know, at a at a, a fancy event because that's how I would wear my coat, but in actual fact, I couldn't get my arm in the sleeve. Or, you know, different places where, where I felt like I was, uh, I was really, I was awkward. I was out of place, and this was for six weeks, and I still had my limb. Is there a sense, do you think, in which, um, hmm, there's a, you've almost got to redefine what normal is. And I, and I wonder if that's even a fair label. Like I'm not really all that comfortable with some of the labels that we toss around, you know, politically and religiously and philosophically and so on. Yeah. I just wonder what your thoughts were having, having experienced some of these things yourself, I would imagine. The vocabulary is always a challenge. Uh, it's always changing. Um, but I, 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 I really relate to some of what you're, you're talking about. Having grown up as an amputee, um, there's many things that you have to to adjust your way of doing things mm -hmm. or think about things creatively or differently. And um, I recall um, when I was young, uh, I was about to start school, and uh, I have an older brother, and so when he learned to tie shoes, I, I wanted to do everything he did, so I figured out how to do it. There was no, no opportunity for my parents try and teach me a method that they could relate to because they had two hands to do it with um, and I didn't. I was missing my arm below the elbow from birth. So um, it, it was always I had to pioneer my own way for things. My, my family was incredibly mm. supportive and, and really worked to help me find the ways to do it. But sometimes it was, okay, well, here's how we do it. What do you think might work for you? Mm. Um, and, and, and when I got to school for the first time to meet the teacher and she was concerned because I had laces on my shoes and her comment was well one of the first things that have to happen before she comes full-time is she needs velcro shoes um not considering the fact that maybe i already knew how to tie my shoes right um, right and right. you know many four-year-olds don't um but uh, i certainly did and she made an assumption based on on the physical appearance um and and that was a lack of of, of knowledge and, and understanding on her part um not not out of any maliciousness, but really from a lack of exposure mm -hmm. to those with disabilities. And and society was much different at that time. This is the early 70s about actually um, encountering and um, and being open about uh, different abilities and and talking about them especially. And I wasn't one of those kids that was happy to sort of be shuffled off to the side. I I wanted to do everything, try everything, be everything. And so I pushed boundaries in my own community without realizing that's what I did. Um, but it's that you know some of those things still exist today. We we often um, make judgments uh, based on someone's visible appearance and decide what they can or cannot do. And um, and so that that's something we still need to work on. It's something I I still battle at this point. Um, and I I know I recently had some uh, some shoulder issues of my own. I, because I'm an APT, I have repetitive strain, mm. and even on the good side is not so good anymore, and, and so I'm always uh, struggling with that. 
and when I when I did have some, some shoulder issues and you're needing to be um, you're needing to find some support services, physiotherapy, that sort of thing, and trying to find someone that understands that the way that I use my body is different than their usual client because of my amputation. It was really challenging. It was limited uh, experience out there. Um, I'm in a situation where, as a as a child growing up, having been born missing a limb is a very common cause of amputation, um, and especially being born missing an arm. As an adult, the most common cause is because of illness such as diabetes, vascular mm. disease, and it's usually later in life, and uh, and the illness is always present, um, and and it's usually a lower limb. So as an adult, I'm in the minority now, and so most people's experience when they do encounter an individual with amputation um, is is always at the leg, and the individual is, is ill. So um, there's there's a lot more support and services related to mobility issues right. from um, you know from walking around than there would be for someone with one hand at my age. And uh, you always feel like you're educating the medical professionals that are working on you rather than them being the experts. It's so interesting that you say we still have some work to do because you like to think that we're, you know, we're incredibly progressive in the West and, you know, wheelchair access. We wouldn't even consider thinking about putting <laughs> veterans affairs on the second floor. I mean, it's just, it's almost like a comedy routine in a way, you know, sounds, sounds like something Rick Mercer would pick up on, but, but, um, you know, but yet, you know, I still wonder to what degree, you know, and, and we're all guilty of it, uh, you know, with the, we just, we just, we're so willing to jump to conclusions without, I mean, if, you know, I, I hate using the phrase it's in our DNA, but in a sense, you know, it, we're, we're, we're kind of, we've set ourselves up that way, right? And so, mm -hmm. in st so, so, so I do a lot of work in Southeast Asia and Cambodia, as most of my listeners know, and as you and I have chatted about before. And so, amputees that go in for, for work in, in countries like that are immediately looked down upon. And mm -hmm. so they, they are less than, right? Yeah. They are less than. They are not full human beings. This is not what a normal person is supposed to be about. Or they, th this is as a result of something they did. You know, it's a very conditional thing. And, and, and I wonder to what degree, on some level, you know, our culture, we're still doing that with our you know, our parents and our teachers and our and the people that we work with and so on. Well, it's, I, I found it interesting to learn what some of the other cultures um, believe from, uh, from a cultural belief system. Um, I know there are some countries where um, the right hand is, is used for personal care and the left hand is used for eating and the two shouldn't mix. And so if you're missing one of them, clearly you're doing both tasks with one hand and that's unclean and that's un. Uh, that's, that's unaccepted, um, and but those are the cultural norms there that that go back centuries, um, and so um, being the first person to come into that, you're, it's going to take a lot to to build understanding and to change that cultural norm. Um, I, I also understand that it can be very complex, and uh, an example of that would be trying to look after all of the accessibility needs that might be in your community. Um, you have an intersection and you have a group that needs to have the um, the, the sloped um, zero grade sidewalk um, approaches, and then you have those with limited vision, and so you might have the uh, fluorescent paint, and then you have uh, those that need the tactile um, indicators that it's an intersection. So there's those raised dots. Um, when you put all of those things together, um, a leg amputee might find that the raised dots present 
mm. um, an obstacle for them. When it's slippery, that um, high visibility paint, uh, when it's raining, becomes very slippery. And so someone with uh, impaired mobility, um, but is still ambulatory, still walking, that presents uh, a hazard because it's, it's slippery. Um, and, uh, and and those, those raised dots for a wheelchair are a challenge. Um, so you start to, you, you look at what you think is a solution for accessibility needs, and there's always a but. Um, mm. that, that's great, but for this group it doesn't work. So I, I understand that it, it's much more complex than any of us could, can really appreciate. Yeah, um, sure. And yet we do the best that we can in society. And I've certainly seen a lot of gains in that area. Um, I, I know that um, in terms of uh, people asking questions or community groups looking for individuals to come in and, and teach them some uh, information about being sensitive to other demographics and, and, and abilities has improved. Um, it's definitely a different world to grow up now. I know um, when I grew up, it was it was challenging in, in dealing with, um, with bullies. It was more related to my amputation. Um, I know bullying is an issue now, but it's more sort of across all of society. And, um, and so it's, it's less about the, the physical limitation at this point, I think, than it was when I was growing up. And that was, I think, a lack of, of knowledge and understanding on the, the part of all of society that I was living amongst, you know, the teachers that might have supported me through that um, you say, you, Karen, you talked about you know as a result of of your your uh, is it okay to is it okay to call it a disability? I, it is. It's still an accepted word. Um, I think everyone has their own feelings about yeah, that word. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, when you look at what is the societal norm, that is a word that is used. Um, I remember. I have a I have a friend who who's uh, one of his kids has. Uh, um, an issue with his hearing mm -hmm. and there was some kind of award that they won this is kind of a very sketchy paraphrased story and when they gave him the award they they kind of made a point of talking about his disability and he says to his dad later I, what are they talking about because he never saw himself as having this you know this hearing disability which I think is really <laughs> wonderful but this is this was his normal, right? What do you, what do you mean? I, what who are who? How dare you call me disabled? And it was just so sort of innocent and and wonderful that you know his worldview was this is just the way it is. I, I think I think for me, I wouldn't say I am disabled. I would say I have a I have a disability mm. because I am more than my my amputation. Mm. Um, I live with amputation. I um, uh, it's it's not. It's not I am this, it's right. I have this. Oh, okay. Or I That's live good. with it. Yep. Um, for me. Um, and I and there are there are times when I don't want to use the word disability any in anything related to myself, um, because I am I'm very able and very capable. Um, and my limitations may have nothing to do with my disability. Mm. Um, you know, nice. with my amputation. Um, however, there are days where it's very clear that I that I live with a disability mm -hmm. and those days can be challenging. That you know, um, we have we all have good days and bad days, and we all have things that we don't like about ourselves, or that can be more challenging on any given day than another. Um, and I know, in, in talking with my colleagues and and my peer group that are amputees as well, and have been all our lives, there are days we have bad arm days, and you know, it's like a bad hair day, um, only a little bit more um, more personal, um, with the you know the, the day when um, 
you're you're really challenged um, with your your physical abilities and um, but those days are you know few and far between and and uh, we've we've all found ways to 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 accept those and to work with them and work past them and know that 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 those days will happen and mm-hmm. that's okay um, you can't always be in a perfect great mood every day um, in general in life we're all dealt with challenges on any given day so it's what you do with those days and yeah. how you move past them well i mean on some level it seems to me we're all you know if we want to use the word disabled let's talk about what that actually means and that's not just to get semantic and argumentative but hang on a minute here what about our own level of brokenness what 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 what, what are we approaching this table with? What is my disability, you know? And I would say with tongue firmly planted in cheek, most of the people I know are emotionally disabled, you know? There's like, you know, we, we suffer, we all suffer on some level, it seems to me, from, from something. And I guess in another words, the, 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 the playing field is pretty level, right? And, and, and one of the messages I, I continue to try to communicate through my podcast and my writing and, and what I'm doing with So Change and so on and as a development consultant is, hey, guys, we're, we're kind of all in this together. It, it takes a, a diverse group to achieve great things. Mm. And if we don't have that diversity, we, we're really limiting what our possibilities are. Um, but to talk a, a bit about societies uh, a, a, bit, a bit more, there was one example I wanted to, to give you that... Um, just happened to me a couple of weeks ago, and, and um, I was in a meeting with those that provide care for entities, and um, an individual had uh, had fallen the day before and uh, looked like she'd been in a bad bad fight, and um, and you know black eyes and such. I, you know, I think I think the nose got broken mm-hmm. um, in the fall, and um, was very self conscious, and that you know a number of people had had already been asking, so what happened? What happened? What happened? And and another individual was attempting to make her feel better and said, well, um, you know, I remember when I was in, in, uh, um, in school and I was on a, a bike or skateboard and I fell and I got road rash all up my face and, and I was teaching uh, swimming and every, every kid was asking me for days, what happened, what happened, what happened? And I got so tired of it and it was so frustrating. The two of them were really commiserating over that. And I, I thought, wow, that, that's pretty much my every day. Hmm. That's every day, all of my life. What happened to your arm? What happened to your arm? What happened to your arm? Um, so um, it's it's interesting the perspective that we bring to it, and uh, and so that was for me that was like wow, oh, um, where's the teaching moment in this? Right. And and to be you know because they're dealing with uh, a clientele that um, predominantly lives with amputation, and so how do we how do we use that opportunity to say um, this is your short term experience with this? Your clientele lives with those questions and those looks and those stares where people may not ask the question verbally, but they're asking it in their look. Um, mm. What happened? Right, and, right. And how do you help them through that? Help, how do you help them understand that, that that is a part of having a visible difference and, and help them move past it? Um, you know, some, everyone does it in a different way. Some people use um, great teaching moments. Some use humor. Some use um, whatever coping mechanism they might. You know, whether it's ignoring the question or whatnot, and some of us um, uh, have stories that maybe aren't as exciting as, as those that uh, um, that lost their limb in a, a traumatic accident or something. And um, occasionally, the stories can get embellished and, and satisfy the, the questioner. Kids like to hear a really good story, and uh, the gorier the better. So, 
you know, I, I'd like I'd like to say that uh, I'm always honest and say that my I lost my arm. Um, I was born missing my arm, but sometimes that doesn't satisfy a kid, and they want to hear something dramatic. Right, so, right. you know, oh, I was at the beach and the sharks came. You know, right. Um, but <laughs> well, I I was telling somebody this morning about how I injured I, my shoulder injury 23 years ago. I tripped over a piece of metal on a construction site, and I so wish I could tell them that was this crazy skateboarding accident, as a you know as a as a teenager. <laughs> no, no, I just tripped over a piece of metal because I'm a bit of a bonehead. Is the bottom line, right? And so, yeah, no, I think I I think I can sort of understand that a wee bit. Um, we all want you know, to hear the, the dramatic story. Yeah, the dramatic, right? It pulls you in. I think what I love about about this what, what we're chatting about is just this. I don't know, opportunity to, to be, I think, I think, if this is a fair way of putting it, to be concerned about the other in a new way or to be mm-hmm. concerned about others, I suppose, in a new way. And I think, I think you know, the, the empathy, sympathy, not sympathy, empathy, um, sympathy is the wrong word. What's the word I'm looking for? Understanding, you know? Understanding. Being sensitive to the questions we ask, the way we ask them, how we interact with others, no matter who it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, we're like, and like I said, you know, we're all, I, I believe anyway, we're all broken in one way or another. We've all got issues, you know, capital I. And, and you know, this idea that, that there's this circle around all of us is, it sounds so corny, but I, I, I think there's a, I think there's a, there's a humbling kind of uh, edge to that, 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 that can be really helpful if we can stand outside of our own egos and our own narcissism and so on and so forth. I love what you said, Karen, about how you, you know, you, uh, I think the quote was, uh, you pushed boundaries in your communities. Um, <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit more about that. So were you, were you some sort of entrepreneur? <laughs> you know, you were pushing the, the so you were a social entrepreneur by the sound of it. I, I really, I really didn't see myself as someone that had any limitations. Mm, um, nice. I really, you know, because I, I had an older brother, and uh, I had a, a number of kids in my neighborhood that we all hung out together and of varying ages and, and interested in so many different things. Um, uh, my family was always involved in skating. I had a number of hockey-playing people in my family. So forget the fact that there weren't girls' leagues and forget the fact that I only had one hand. I was going to play hockey. There was, right. I mean, it just, it wasn't a question. It was, you know, um, about if I would, it was, you know, when am I, you know, when can I register? And, and I've been on skates at 13 months, you know. Um, if I'd been born at a different time of the year, it would have been earlier than that. Um, and so I, I, I want, I just, I just lived. I lived what my peer group lived in my, in my community. And so, that often meant trying to find different ways to do it, and it it really involves the community to do that. Mm. Um, I remember in school one really struggling with uh, with volleyball, and uh, my phys ed teacher actually went to high school with my parents, and so uh, I think he he felt a vested interest in in helping me find a way to do that so that I wasn't the last picked all the time. So every you know lunch hour, every recess, every opportunity we had to to go to the gym and work on it. We did, and we found different ways for me to, to play volleyball so that the next time I was picked last, that wow, I surprised them, and I, you know, I got the ball over the net. When all the kids at the campground that we spent all of our summers at for 14 years would, um, were learning to water ski, um, and I, I, want, I was trying just like everyone else was, but after several years of never getting up, um, uh, one family who had a professional water skier, um, they always visited for a couple weeks from Maine, they, they they sort of went back over the winter and said, we have to get this kid up on skis next year. And the, 
professional son, you know, water skiing son said it's body mechanics. She mm. she can't wear her artificial arm in the boat. She's trying to do it with one hand and with her, her short arm, and so she's not balanced or square behind the boat. So, of course, she's going to fall over. So let's, instead of using a single bar control, let's give her two handles that we can change the length of one so that, that they, they're the right, right length to give me uh, balance behind the boat and being square. Well, the first time that we tried this the following summer, um, the whole group was so used to me never getting up, they were getting the next person ready to, to get in the water when up I got and away I went. And they were shocked. Um, they even ran to get my parents um, hmm. and brought them down to the beach so they could see it. The, you know, the funny part of that story is they were so sure I was never going to get up on skis. No one ever told me what to do once you were up. So um, what do you do on a corner? And what do you do when it's time to just let go? Um, so it was probably the longest first ski, water skiing <laughs> effort um, anyone's ever had. <laughs> what do you mean you want me to let go? Well, it sounds like uh, you were constantly, you know, trying to solve problems that, that I wouldn't have had to solve. Right. And in, in a sense and, and, and coming up with your own solutions because either the, the local culture or, or, or uh, the, the health community wasn't in a, that, that place. And it seems to me that that's probably on some level how some of this, this work and some of this, um, um, yeah, I guess just this work move, moves forward. What, is, what I've really come to realize in the last, uh, the last several months um, but what the contribution of the Warrants Child Amputee Program has really done for, for child amputees in Canada, um, and it's because it's unique to Canada and having conversation with colleagues in other countries that I've really been aware of this, is all of those activities that I did as a kid, um, there were no special devices to be, to be used. I was born a little bit before the Child Amputee Program was, and so I was pushing the boundaries on pediatric prosthetics. Hmm. Um, I was really... Um, I was using them um, really, really, really well. I wasn't abusing them, but really using them and finding the limitations. And it drove my own um, prosthetic providers to to seek better That's better great. devices and to go to the larger manufacturing companies and say, this product that you've got for these kids, um, I've got this kid that is blowing through every limit that you right. put on it. Right. What do you, you know, we need to do something. Right. Um, and and the, the, the Warrant Child MT program provides funding for for whatever the government doesn't cover, which in some provinces is 100% that they don't cover, and, and then for recreational devices. Um, and no insurance company or government in Canada provides funding for recreational devices, and so, so they provide that for the children to help them to figure out what they're, going, you know, what they're good at, what they're interested in, and keep them involved as children. Um, but because of that funding, um, Canada has been able to continue to pursue pediatric prosthetic devices for all activities. And so there's been incredible development. So there's things for swimming, there's things for hockey, mm -hmm. for yoga, for cycling, for weightlifting, for violin playing. Those things didn't exist when I was a kid. Um, and, and no other country can really afford to, um, to have those as options within the country because there's no funding for them. Right. Um, that's where the warmth has really been able to, to help fill that gap in Canada. So having those devices available um, to children in Canada is unique. Is Canada what we've been is, able to do? Is Canada kind of a, a leader with some in some regards globally with some of the stuff? In terms of in supporting an organization like the Warrants and our Child Amputee Program, yes, we're absolutely unique. And because of that support, that allows us to do the funding for the prosthetics, which means that the global industry has been able to um, to really benefit from that, that right. demand and 
do the research and development and manufacturing of those devices. We've been hearing a lot in the media about 3D printing, and in the U.S., there's a number of crowd-sourced um, 3D printed hands that are being done wow. through universities, and, and you know, and they're doing it uh, you know, very um, uh, for very limited cost, um, and so they're they're filling a gap um, for some children that that otherwise would go without any kind of an artificial lens. Um, I've checked them out. They're you know, it's, it's great technology that's not there yet for the demand the child's going to give it, nor the the physiological development and the um, you know, Health Canada's regulations, it's a medical device and you've got to make sure that you're, um, that it's aligned properly, that it fits properly, that it, it, it doesn't do any other skeletal, um, right. you know, development changes, whatnot. But, um, but Canada has funding for artificial limbs for children because of the support of the Warrant for Child MT program. Yeah, that's amazing. I love The U.S. doesn't have that. So it's interesting to see how that, they're filling a gap with these, this other type of device, but it's it's not it's not where we're able to be in Canada, right? And that's that's amazing. That's that's such a credit to Canadians' um, generosity to a program that really makes a difference in amputees of all ages. I love I love the practical nature of what you guys do. I'm looking here at the photo with the war amp tag, and it's just so simple, and it's so tangible, and it's making s- such it's having such a huge impact in such a. And what's really amazing is such a practical way. I mean, can you mm-hmm. get much more practical? You know, if if you want to get involved and you want to give back, this is this is a story to tell. It seems to me. It's it's really interesting when you actually get to talk to a donor and you get to say, "This is exactly what your your donation goes towards." You put it. You're, you're helping to put. Um, an artificial leg on someone so they mm-hmm. can go for a walk with their grandchild. Mm-hmm. You can um, you can help provide an artificial limb to um, to a child so that they can they can go to school and they can um, participate in their daily class. They can pick up their piece of paper and use their scissors that they can um, that they can participate in gym um, with their their classmates. I know there were there were portions of gym class that I had to sit out as a kid because. I didn't have the right device or the ability to do certain tasks. Um, when the whole school was taking recorder lessons, I ran out of fingers halfway through the program. Hmm. Um, you know, but we have devices now um, that can help kids do yeah. that and to, to to really find their way and to keep up with their peers. That uh, that without that, you know, the, the Canadian public, we wouldn't be able to do. And and I think um, to me, that's just so amazing to see what we. You know, as a society, we've been able to to do, and the changes we've been able to see, um, because we have we we have this great organization that's been around for close to 100 years now. Uh, Karen, and is your of- is your office on the ground floor? <laughs> uh, my office is on the ground floor. Actually, we we're sort of half above. <laughs> we have one level that's half above, half below, right. but uh, but we are accessible. Yeah, good. Um, Glad to hear it. Hey, just before we wrap up, tell us about, uh, by, by the way, waramps.ca. Uh, please please check out the site. Uh, so is it the 70th anniversary of the key tag? Tell us a little bit more about that as we wrap up here today. It's the 70th anniversary of the key tag service. So that's the uh, the key return service that we provide to Canadians. We mail out a confidentially coded key tag to you. You can order, if you don't haven't received them, you'll be receiving them over the spring. And if for some reason you miss them, you can go to our website, waramps.ca or one 800 Two five zero thirty thirty to order them, um, and if you like our service, you can donate to us in, in thanks for the, the service that we provide. And it's uh, it's a confidential service to return your keys to. It provides safety and security to all your keys. It doesn't have to be just car keys; it can be your house keys, your 
your church key. It could be um, other valuables that you have that you want to attach them to. And, and that's where we get our funds to run our programs. And so we're very, very grateful to the Canadian public for supporting that. Program. And, and based, on your, based on the numbers, one and a half million sets of keys, of lost keys returned to their owners, the odds are that I'm going to be benefiting from the service in the next year or two. I think that's uh, basically what you're telling me, Karen. Yes, and, <laughs> and uh, it really does work. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you so much uh, for your uh, time today. Really, really appreciate uh, some of the insights and, and uh, wow, what a, what a metaphor. What a, what a, and I think a challenge too, frankly, to other nonprofits to start thinking about, about how they, about, about the, the work they're doing, the impact and, and how they're raising funds. Karen Valley, Director of National Amputee Center for War Amps at War Amps uh, with us today. Thanks so much for your time, Karen. Thank you very much, David. It's been great. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.